0: This is the Awareness Offerings Podcast, a weekly offering of yoga philosophy discussion and guided meditation for the moments we're living in. I'm your host, Lara Davy joplin I'm a yoga and meditation teacher, integrative therapist, and spiritual social media strategist. I'm trying to integrate the principles of spiritual philosophy as I understand them into all those areas of my work and into my life trying to understand my position as a white woman devotee of yoga in the West, and simply trying to live with awareness. This podcast is me doing all that out loud. Welcome in. You're listening to episode 71, Democratization versus Pathologization. It's a whole lot of Asians in that title. So a heads up that this episode is going to be more from the mental health perspective, which is one of the aspects of the work I do. I am a new therapist who's integrating the work of studying yoga and meditation as I have for almost a decade into the therapeutic space. So this is more of a mental health focused episode. So right off the top, want to make you aware of that in case for any reason, this might not be something for you to listen to, or you might want to be just aware and and have extra support as you listen to this episode for whatever reason. So heads up, mental health episode coming at you. And welcome to this week's episode of the Awareness Offerings podcast. Thanks for hanging out, especially last week. We had a little bit of a shorter, more reflective share that I recorded on my voice notes app from my bed last week because I didn't quite feel like I needed a whole break, but I also didn't have a whole episode in me. So I met myself halfway there and I appreciate you you know hanging out for that and I actually got some really sweet feedback on that episode and now we're back for a full length regularly structured episode of this podcast and speaking of feedback and this podcast if you would like to support the show best ways you can do so are to rate subscribe and or leave a review on whatever platform you're using to listen you can share by word of mouth or via social media if you feel inspired and all of those actions help other people find this show Deep appreciation for that, deeper appreciation just that you're here as always. Just so grateful we get to share some space and explore together. So let's get into it. We'll go into our opening practice of singing the sound of OM, the resonant, neutralizing sound of consciousness together one time. You can join me in singing Om out loud. You can listen, sing it in your mind. You could vocalize whether it's Om or not. Just know that sound is harmonizing. So we're kind of harmonizing with each other and harmonizing maybe in a centered or finding a centered space within ourselves as we start this journey together here in this episode. So we'll go for it. If you're coming along with me and it is safe for you to do so, you might get your body into a still and comfortable position. If it's safe and supportive, safe especially on this one, you might choose to close your eyes or not. You could just take a soft gaze by looking down the tip of your nose or gazing toward the floor. If it's available for you, from here you might take a full breath in through your nose. Then you can release that breath first, make some space, and then we'll inhale to begin. thank you for joining me in that practice and now for this week's discussion so as i touched on right in the intro this is more a mental health focused episode but for me in my my studies, my life, my work, my philosophy, our mental health and our spiritual life are not separate. And I take that very literally, even when I am interfacing with clients. And actually, especially interfacing with clients in, you know, the therapeutic space, I try to see my clients as whole beings, which means taking in the full, you know, all the layers of who they are, which includes their spiritual reality and the reality that they are, you know, humans with with spiritual connections and an inner life. So to me, in many ways, spirituality and mental health are connected. And this podcast, this episode will lean a little more heavily on the mental health side because I have just continued to observe the way that discourse and just the way that mental health has evolved alongside the rapid, sometimes wild and just, I don't even know, like wild and toxic and interesting and amazing evolution of social media. I see mental health and social media evolving alongside each other. And some of the things I've seen, or some of the things I've been seeing, I have wanted to, you know, chew on and maybe chat about for quite some time. And now uh, a specific Thing that I saw and heard about recently that had to do with social media and the internet gave me the words to say. I finally feel like I know what I want to say and I've, I've seen enough and I've had enough experience and conversation with other mental health practitioners that I feel like I'm in a good place to talk a little bit about just the state of things when it comes to mental health and the internet. And they are kind of inextricably intertwined with each other for better or for worse. And I think for better, and I think there's a reason that mental health and the internet are intertwined because especially here in the United States, we have a really messed up healthcare system and we are slowly but surely growing away from a lot of outdated stigmas and ideas around mental health. And so it's not always incredibly accessible to get mental health support here. So in a way, it makes sense to me that mental health discourse and mental health tools have made their way to the internet. And in some ways, I think that's great. And I think there's some risk with that. And I'm going to talk about both things. And in the spirit of of centering, right, as a yoga teacher, I often talk about balancing and wholeness and, and opposite actions and bringing things together, ultimately for the purpose of finding center. And the hope is that I can do that in this Conversation that I'm gonna share with you today, come at it from a place of center. So I'm gonna start by reading you a tweet that I reshared to my Instagram story a couple of, of weeks ago, and it was sort of uh parodying, it was lampooning the current state of social media mental health discourse, and I found it really funny, and it spoke to Things I've been personally thinking about and, and the way I see some of this for a while. And so I reshared it. I'm going to start here by reading it. This is a Twitter user, at Mastiff. It's spelled with uh, a four instead of an A. So it's M4stiff. So Twitter user Mastiff tweeted, Tik-tok-, TikTok psychiatry has people saying shit like, not me hyperfixating on cooking this pasta. Silly face emoji. Motherfucker, you're focused. That's called you focused on a task. And that was the tweet. And I, I loved it. I laughed at it. I reshared it. Um, some folks that follow me also, um, you know, they shared some feedback via story replies that, that they resonated and thought that it was funny. And to me, that really spoke to this growing trend I'm seeing on social media. And it made me feel validated that other folks are seeing it the way that I'm seeing it. And what I mean by that is, there is this increasing tendency to self-diagnose, to to um, label ourselves with certain mental conditions via the internet with information that we get on the internet and by way of seeing like memes and videos that other people post, whether they are qualified mental health professionals or not, and using that to self-diagnose. And that has been a trend that I have seen happening. And I've, obviously I'm not the only one that's seeing it. Um, but, but the mental health discourse has really grown in that direction. And it only seems to be getting more intense as time goes on. There's a lot of self-diagnosis on social media. And in that same vein, and what that tweet speaks to is the way that every, both with under the umbrella of this self-diagnosis and kind of parallel to it, whether we are actually self-diagnosing with a mental health condition or not, there seems to be this tendency to view every pattern that we have, every action that we take, or at least a whole lot of our patterns and actions, a lot of them very human, to view those as indicators of a mental health condition or view them as like pathological mental health patterns and name them for ourselves in very technical terms. And that tweet was making a joke out of that phenomenon. You know, people now are, are and this is, it might've been a joke, but I don't think it's an exaggeration. I have seen this unfold via social media discourse that people are, are noticing themselves being incredibly focused and they'll name it as hyperfixating. Or someone will post A list of behaviors that are very human behaviors. Like I procrastinate a lot and I, you know, have a hard time knowing how much time I actually have before I have to be somewhere. Or I, you know, have social anxiety or I experience feelings of social anxiety. And the list, those, those attributes, as if they are a clear indicator of having some kind of condition. Right now, the typical condition to go toward is autism or ADHD, some kind of neurodivergence. And I want to say out loud, I'm naming these things just to lay out, this is what I see happening. This is the reality that I am observing. I am not naming these things to inherently name them as bad or to cast judgment. I'm just saying I'm seeing this a whole lot. And so there seems to be this increasing trend of viewing our behaviors and our actions through a microscope, a microscope that is only amplified by the discourse on social media and by some of the echo chambers we might get ourselves into on social media. And through that really uh, hyper focused lens, see all of our actions and patterns as maladaptive or as pathological or as, you know, some indicator of a mental health condition or some um, just maybe a negative pattern in terms of our mental health. It just seems really easy. and, And like more and more folks are seeing themselves that way. And the most recent example I have heard of around this, and I believe it came from uh, a TikTok therapist is what I heard from someone else. I am not actually on TikTok. I see TikTok through other social media platforms, but this is something I heard secondhand. But I did and, and I will say, interestingly enough, after I heard this, it showed up in an entirely different place on the internet. So I saw it a second time. So this seems to be a, a newer and trendier um mental health topic to speak on. So the most recent one that I heard was that taking incredibly hot showers is a a coping mechanism that we we see as normal, but it's actually self-harm. So that's the latest one that I've seen is that super hot showers that we might use as a coping mechanism are actually a way that we allow ourselves to get away with self-harm without actually... Noticing or facing the fact that we are engaging in self harm, so I probably should have led with a content warning in this episode. But discussions of self harm—that's as far as it's going to go. Um, we won't go any more into it. But but that's what I saw, and that this this last little mental health uh, nugget of if you do this thing, it means X about your mental health that I have seen and heard about in our mental health internet discourse. That was what actually inspired me to finally talk about this on the podcast. That was what just struck me a lot and, and inspired a lot more reflection and gave me the words and the, the structure that I needed to feel like I could go ahead and have this conversation. Because it is something I've been thinking about sharing for a while, given that I continue to see this trend and, and other mental health professionals that I am, you know, colleagues with have said the same thing. But I see this trend of, of self-diagnosis via internet information. And it's something I've been been following and been interested in speaking about for a while. But that really did it for me. This, this discourse around super hot showers are self-harm. So, it has inspired me to dive into this conversation around what I titled the episode, Democratization versus Pathologization. Because as I attempt to reflect on this as a mental health professional and from a centered whole place, I believe there are two sides to it, at least two. Everything is nuanced, everything has layers. You know that's my favorite thing to say. But there's at least two sides to this coin. One of them is democratization. Democratizing mental health, making mental health tools, mental health information, and mental health support more accessible. And like I touched on earlier in the episode, in one way or, or on the one hand, that makes incredible sense to me. It makes so much sense that there is a need and I see it and it's real. There's a need to democratize mental health information, especially in the United States, because we live in a system. We, we do not have universal health care. Um, health care costs are a real uh, barrier to entry for so many people and mental health is health care. So it's Financially difficult for people to accept to access mental health care. There's still stigma around needing mental health support. Fortunately, with generational shift and the internet itself, right? Not here to demonize the internet at all. So much of what I do is possible because of the internet. This podcast included. Um, but with those different factors, we are. T- we're having more open conversations about mental health and it is being destigmatized but there is still a stigma um, there is still there are still preconceptions and stereotypes around who therapy is for who is allowed to talk about their feelings it can be very gendered it can be tied up in patriarchy right folks who identify with with masculine or, or folks who are men or identify as masculine are very from from a very early age typically conditioned uh, to not have feelings—that it is actually not for them; that it is not a masculine thing to have feelings—and that can carry over into this, you know, as adults, or really anyone. But as an adult, that can carry over as a stigma around. Well, therapy must be for women or for for people who identify with with femme and feminine traits, because it's not masculine to even have feelings, let alone explore them with another person. So there's all of these isms and systems and barriers to entry, especially in this country, in the United States, when it comes to mental health access. And I will never deny that mental health is inaccessible and it's an issue. I am a social worker. And so I have an ethical responsibility, according to the National Association of Social Workers, to participate in advocacy. And so it's my responsibility to say out loud, mental health care is not accessible enough. And so it makes so much sense to me that we would need to democratize mental health care and use what we have and do what we can to make mental health tools more accessible. And I do absolutely see the Internet as a tool for that. We have the opportunity as mental health professionals and as folks, whether we're qualified quote unquote qualified, because I know that even qualifications are wrapped up in things like patriarchy and colonialism and and capitalism. We can't separate these things. So whether we're quote unquote qualified or not, even folks who just go through mental health struggle and have the lived experience, We have this opportunity to share tools with care and discernment, which is something I'll talk about in a little bit, to make this, this work, make the work of caring for our mental health more accessible. I see the need for that, and I see how the internet has facilitated that. And I think the open conversations, the sharing of tools with discernment is important. And I'm not at all trying to discount that. I'm actually very pro democratization of mental health resources. And so on the one hand, I, I think it's really important that more people are having these conversations, that more people are getting curious about how they want to name their experiences, especially with mental health, how they want to support themselves, what communities they want to find by, you know, associating their experiences with different diagnoses and conditions. I think that's a great thing. And... If I'm coming at it from a centered space, the other side of that is pathologization, pathologization. And what I mean by that is treating all of our, or or what I should say is treating so much of our human experience as if it is an indication of pathology, and pathology means disease. It's an issue, it's a problem that needs to be fixed. And so I think when we are constantly looking at ourselves through this internet mental health lens and wondering what how our patterns are related to mental health conditions in such an amplified way, we lean very hard into pathologization. When we are operating under the understanding or operating with the understanding that, you know, everything from being really focused on a task to taking a really hot shower is an indication of an issue or a problem that needs to be fixed, we're pathologizing. And I think that that can be a risky place to be. First of all, simply because I think it can perpetuate shame. I think it's really easy to hyperfixate, if you will, in, from this place to hyperfixate on what's wrong and to get caught in a narrative around there is something wrong with me. And this and this and this, I'm checking off a checklist of all of my patterns of behaviors and each of these is indicating that I have this issue. And that is not to say that mental health conditions do not exist. I just think that when we are, as a culture... In kind of a free-for-all discourse around what mental health conditions mean and what indicates that we have mental health conditions, um, it can get really easy to pathologize and then perpetuate shame and just continue to... Or, or to in general, just to look at ourselves as if we are a problem that needs to be fixed, as if there is always something wrong. And then we kind of get a confirmation bias going where everything we see confirms that there's something wrong with us. So I think that it perpetuates shame. And the other thing that this pathologization that internet mental health can really get us into, the other thing it perpetuates is outdated systems for me and in my my awareness and understanding seeing every little behavior and choice and pattern as an indication of a disease or an issue it actually perpetuates the very systems that caused these issues in the first place meaning issues meaning the fact that mental health care is classist, the fact that it is steeped in systems like racism, patriarchy, classism, The if we become or if we overly ascribe to the disease model of mental health by over pathologizing ourselves, we are only perpetuating the old and outdated systems of mental health because I'm here to tell you the mental health system as it is, it's the, the structural roots of mental health in systems like racism and patriarchy and classism and homophobia and all of the isms, right? that type of mental health system will pathologize you all day. You don't need to do it yourself because the traditional mental health system or the, the, the roots of the classical mental health system, I should say, that'll do it for you. And so when we lean really hard into pathologizing ourselves, into seeing every behavior as indication of a, of a disease, we're doing the work of the system that we need to be fighting against. The very system that has made mental health care so inaccessible in the first place. The very system that has created a need for us to spend all this time talking about mental health on the internet instead of actually getting kind of person-to-person, community-based, off-the-internet mental health care and community care. The very systems that have created that issue are the ones that we're upholding by ascribing to this model of everything's a problem. And mental health care means we got to be fixed, right? Almost like a punitive system, similar to our carceral system, our system of incarceration here in the United States, where... You know, folks who commit crime are a problem that need to be fixed rather than usually or typically or in a lot of cases, folks who don't have the resources and so have to get what they need extra legally, Right? That's how we treat people in the criminal justice system. And this classical, deeply rooted mental health system treats our brains and our emotions and our human experiences the same way by saying human experiences are indications of a disease and we got to fix you. We got to fix you for being a human. And the the model of mental health um, that's integrative and contemplative, that integrates spiritual philosophy, that sees people as whole humans, the model that I'm working from, instead says, yes, these tools are somewhat helpful And sometimes incredibly helpful. Having a name to your experience can be so helpful. It can be validating. It can form community because we can find other folks who have experiences like us because we have kind of a label. We have a file folder we can click on and find more information and find more people. And... A lot of the times suffering is a human experience due to the nature of being human, which involves heartbreak, which involves grief, which involves trauma. And in the world we live in also involves traumatic systems like structural racism and patriarchy and classism. And those things are not indications of an individual disease. Sometimes they're indications of a collective issue. Or they're indications of just being a human and having a human experience. And we can actually help people more when we see them in their wholeness and don't default to, oh, this is a problem that we have to fix. And so that's what I'm saying when I say that when we look at things like, oh, this is a pathology that needs to be fixed. We're perpetuating a system that has created a lot of these issues that make internet mental health um, necessary in the first place. So that's one other reason that I think that we have to be careful with it. And then of course there is, you know, there's discussion to be had around self-diagnosis and just, I, I, and it's tricky. This is a tricky part because like I touched on earlier, qualifications themselves come from that deeply rooted system of mental health that can be deeply inequitable. So I don't want to suggest that somebody has to be quote unquote qualified in order to name what their mental health means to them or name their experience. And having recently been through it, there is a certain level of study and dedication on you know on the part of folks who train to do this that can be helpful it can just be helpful I think what I'm getting at is it can be helpful to have someone else to navigate something so vulnerable and so fundamental as our mental health with us rather than trying to take that burden on ourselves and then kind of tying ourselves in knots over it or at least that's a risk we can run and I touched a little bit earlier about how right now the most common self-diagnosis that you see via, you know, TikTok information or, or social media mental health discourse is neurodivergence, right? Uh, diagnosis, self-diagnosis with autism or ADHD. and. Again, I don't want to discount that at all because I think that incredible good has come from folks seeing other people talking about their experiences on social media and saying, oh, wow, I have that same experience. And then it inspires them to dig a little deeper and to get a diagnosis. And I think that that is real. And also, I think it's important to be careful not to, you know, get ourselves the wrong information, right? That's why it helps to sometimes have guidance And to be careful not to, you know, assume pathology, assume brokenness in ourselves, um, like I touched on before. And the reality is that certain mental health, first of all, what I want to name first is that I think neurodivergence is a lot more common than we think right now, this current model, the fact that, you know, folks are, are discovering neurodivergence late in life, and they're discovering it over the internet. I think part of it is still because we think of neurodivergence as outside the norm. But I think neurodivergence is incredibly common for a couple of reasons. One, because, because of how life is now. <laughs> because we are so bombarded with information and external stimuli, and we are expected to do so much more in a human lifespan than other humans were doing in hundreds of years uh, before, you know, in pre-industrial times. I think that that lends itself to, you know, patterns of, of overstimulation and um, can then show up as neurodivergence. So I think that it's, it's incredibly common among so many of us because of the way that we live, And through that deeply rooted classical mental health system and and other kind of ways of conditioning we're all subjected to, we're trained to believe that there is a normal, just like we're trained to believe there's a binary when it comes to gender or something like gender with, you know, male, female, that's it. Um, We're trained to believe there's sort of a binary or an accepted scale or way of being when it comes to having a brain, right? A normal way of thinking um when i think in reality that's bullshit <laughs> i think neurodivergence is a lot more common than we think because we all have this unique kind of makeup of brain chemistry and life circumstances and you know personality traits and if you are into it right we're all born under different astrological signs and we all have different you know stardust particles from the universe that make up who we are right that all of that is to say we're all incredibly connected and we're all incredibly unique and it actually might be the norm that most of us divert right? Divergent. Most of us divert from the quote-unquote accepted way of functioning, of living, of thinking, of having a brain in some form or fashion. So that is not to say it's wrong to find community and to to find validation, to find answers through self-diagnosis, with neurodivergence, and then perhaps to seek professional guidance if that's something that we do. Um, none of that's to say it's wrong. I think I'm actually advocating for just a destigmatization of neurodivergence so that when we have these conversations, say on the internet, and we share our experiences and discover that we might be neurodivergent and find community and find validation, that it doesn't have to tip us over into that that trap, that habit of pathologizing, of assuming, okay, I'm neurodivergent and so I I have a disease or there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. I think we can have these conversations without pathologizing by normalizing kind of the the magic of neurodivergence, the, the, um, the rich tapestry of ways of thinking and functioning. So that's kind of my spiel on on some of the self-diagnosis stuff, um, and the most kind of the most risky part, I think, is is pathologizing. But I do think it's important to have these conversations. And another risk. Before I go into my last bit about why this is tricky and where mental health professionals come in, where my side of of the the um, where the folks on my side of the room um, come in. Before I get into that, I just want to note that another thing that um, sort of this over self-diagnosis and over pathologizing that social media seems to be breeding, another thing that that can um, breed (laughs) in itself is individualization of our mental health. Meaning the assumption that our mental health struggles, our suffering, our pain, our um, ways of being that that make things hard for us in any kind of way, that that's an individual issue. That it is because of simply the way our individual brain functions. Whereas, you know, as we touched on a little bit, there are issues at play like structural violence, right? We live in a, a world of inequities, a world of unequal distribution of resources. And that in itself can be trauma and it can be detrimental to our day-to-day functioning. And so putting too much focus on our individual experiences in self-diagnosis can perpetuate the notion that we alone are responsible for functioning well and feeling okay when the idea, if we take it from a collectivist perspective, which I do, is that we should all live in a world where we all have what we need and we have the resources to function well and be okay as a collective. So again, that's where I'm coming from as far as you know the risks and rewards of these conversations and pathologizing, individualizing, that's all that. But one of the most important things to share is the role of the mental health practitioner in these conversations. If I go back to when I heard about a TikTok therapist saying that, you know, taking really hot showers is a coping mechanism that's actually self-harm. My thought was, I'm, I wonder what business that person has making a blanket statement like that. If indeed it was a blanket statement, I didn't hear the actual word. So I don't know that it was. And, you know, I want to, I want to say that I think it is worth investigating, you know, what, what coping mechanisms, what patterns are we playing out that might actually be more, Or, or what I should say is that might actually be less loving to ourselves than we think. I think that's worth investigating. But I think that, you know, a blanket statement like, you know, showering with hot water, with really hot water, is self harm. I think that falls a little less into I'm curious about what patterns are actually serving me and more into we're pathologizing a, a, a human habit that is pretty common is an indication of self-harm. And I think it could be worth exploring. That could be true for some people. But my point is it's really tricky to make generalizations like that. And that's where the responsibility of the mental health practitioner comes in when we're talking about having these kinds of conversations and offering mental health resources and sharing mental health tools on the internet. I think it's really helpful and important and needed to share tools. And I think, as I, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, that we have to be really discerning, if we're a mental health professional, about how we do it. And so, you know, we can share general tools and best practices. We can share what has worked for us. You know, we can make it a little more personal without diving too much into... Um, our own like mental health conditions so that we're not you know disclosing something that could damage a therapeutic relationship um, with a client who might see it on social media so we can individualize it as in like say this is what has worked for me so we're making it clear that we're not making a blanket statement because that's where it gets tricky is if we're trying to give overly generalized advice or to make over generalized statements as if they apply to everyone. Because as I said, you know, a, a minute or, or two ago, I don't know who's going to see it. First of all, you know, it could be a client or former client of mine that's seeing my work on social media. So I have to be careful about what I'm saying and what tools I'm sharing. And Um, that I'm not sharing something that might contradict, you know, work we've done together or might engender shame in them for whatever reason. But I also, I just don't know who actually is seeing my content when it comes to the internet. You know, thousands of people at any given time could have access to my publicly available social media presence. And I have no idea who the person is behind the screen who's seeing it? I don't know their. I don't know their their history. I don't know what their family system is like. I don't know what environment they're living in. I don't know what their patterns are like. And so I have no idea if I'm making um, really specific statements as if they are generalizable to every single person. I actually have no idea whether that could apply or be helpful to a stranger who I don't have any background information on. And that's why when it comes to actual therapeutic work, a therapeutic relationship is so important. Getting to know someone in a therapist-client relationship and forming a, a therapeutic alliance with them is so vital because we then have the context to understand why they might be the way they are where they're coming from, how they might receive something so that we can then personalize tools and strategies and practices to actually help them and support them in their goals and in their growth. Whereas on the internet, I cannot personalize anything for anyone because I don't know how they might receive it and where they might be coming from. And so trying to make statements that are really personal, like, You know, if you take a hot shower, you're engaging in self-harm. That's really tricky because we just don't know how it's going to be received. And that's kind of the note I want to end on when I'm talking about this balance of the important work of democratizing mental health versus the risks of over pathologizing by talking about mental health on the Internet. I want to end with the responsibility of mental health professionals, of which I am one. Because I'm aware that if I'm sitting here, you know, talking away, sounding like I'm lecturing from a high horse, it could be really easy as, you know, a, a person who may not, not, who may not be in the mental health field and maybe, you know, is seeking mental health support. It could be really easy to receive that as criticism or shaming around how anyone chooses to, to navigate their mental health. And I want to be really clear. I, shame is not the intention here. And I am fully aware of the structural issues that make it necessary to look to the internet for community and validation and support. And I think that is fully valid. And as as someone who has the more specialized training and information, I want to bolster that support by just naming the risks as well. But I want to end on the responsibility of practitioners, because that's the most important part to me. I'm not here to shame anyone for how they navigate their mental health. I'm here to, one, just open conversations, to continue to have these open conversations to hopefully break stigmas. And just to take responsibility as a mental health professional, as someone who has a a relatively public presence through things like this podcast and my social media presence and all of that, to say, just just to recommit and to name out loud. It's so important to be discerning in how we we do the needed work to make these tools accessible and not do it in a way that could, you know, contribute to over-pathologizing, to The assumption that everything is an indicator of an issue um, or to engender shame. And so I'm naming that and fully owning that responsibility and also just sitting in a place of real love and and gratitude and even delight that I do get the opportunity to sit in the seat of mental health professional and try to democratize and try to change change the conversation and try to share as many resources as I can. And of course, one of the resources that I share both publicly on social media and in client sessions as a, a therapeutic modality is contemplative practice. So maybe let's join in that. So, this is a point in the Awareness Offerings podcast where we shift from. Discussion into meditation, from thinking about it into embodying it. And I really want to honor that that shift to me is really parallel to the shift that I'm talking about in this podcast. That shift from sort of the pathological model of mental health into Kind of more of a, a an integrative model where we acknowledge humanness and wholeness, right? Shifting from from thinking into being to me mirrors the shift from pathologizing into kind of full embrace and full support. So here we go. If you're in a position to sit comfortably for a bit, go ahead and start to shift. If you're not, if you're driving or showering or washing dishes, this might be a great time to pause the show and come back when you're ready. If you're ready now, that comfortable position entails absolutely any seat at all, as long as you can find some spaciousness in your spine. So you could sit on the ground, you could sit with support underneath your tailbone, you could sit on your couch or on a chair or in your bed. You can sit with your back to the wall with your arms and legs in any position as long as you can find some length in your spinal column. The center the center line in your body through which your energy moves and your nervous system communicates. Finding some space and connection there from that place maybe settling in for this moment of contemplative practice by closing your eyes or you could choose instead to soften your gaze by looking down toward the tip of your nose or toward the floor Just sending a signal to yourself that you're turning inward that you are purposefully arriving in yourself To support that sense of arrival. From here you might begin to follow the arc of your breathing. No need to change the breath. No need to fix the breath as if it's a pathology. Instead witnessing it as it is. Embracing and supporting yourself by just connecting to the present moment phenomena of your, phenomenon of your breath. To allow yourself space to land in the present moment itself. Just in an acknowledgement of the work of embodied presence, you might here use an affirmation, a mantra, a phrase so that your mind has something to focus on that is not the chaos of thinking and is rather the steadiness of moving toward presence through mantra, through affirmative thought. So you might inhale here. I embrace and support myself. And as you exhale, you might say to yourself, I embrace and support myself. Inhaling, I embrace and support myself. Exhaling, I embrace and support myself. Inhaling, I embrace and support myself. Exhaling, I embrace and support myself perhaps deepening presence through giving your mind, your body, your nervous system an indication that you are here for yourself. You are showing up for and with you. And there's nothing else to do right now, but tend to yourself with care. Through presence, inhaling, I embrace and support myself. Exhaling, I embrace and support myself. Just breathing it in and out and hopefully that gives your mind something to do and focus on so that it's a little more straightforward to be with your breath and whatever other present moment phenomena are with you rather than needing to be fully beholden to the constant fluctuation of your mind. Instead, your mind reminding you of your presence. Inhaling, I embrace and support myself. Exhaling, I embrace and support myself. And it could be that here those specific words are an indication of some of the work we've been digesting and reflecting on in this specific podcast episode. Embracing and supporting ourselves. Embracing whatever our path is. To deeper care, whether that's, you know, mental health discourse on the internet or, you know, in-person therapy, whatever it is. Embracing and supporting ourselves. Using the language we need to. Asking for the help that we need to. Envisioning a world where we all have the support that we need to have the care that we need. Maybe that's what's contained in this affirmation, as you inhale, I embrace and support myself. And exhale, I embrace and support myself. Maybe a few more breaths, just affirming that you get to do that for yourself, however it looks. Maybe you take one more breath in, in this more contemplative space of embrace and support. And you exhale. Then perhaps you blink your eyes open just a little, just a sliver, as if you could see some of the light around you, some of the space around you. And also still see a little bit of the space behind your eyelids. Imagining that you could look outward and inward at the same time for just a moment. So imagining transitioning your recognition that you are worthy of embrace and support in all the spaces you're in, mental health included. Maybe taking that affirmation with you out into how you navigate your world, this wild world. And then you can start to blink your eyes open a little more. Maybe you start to move your body, continuing the transition. And speaking of transition, I feel that's a lot of what this conversation is about. Just how we all navigate the transition, this time of transition and upheaval and, you know, even instability that we're all living in together. How do we navigate the way the world is changing? The risks we all face, the way the world is so much more on the internet, the way the conversation around mental health is changing, the way we all have such heightened needs and care or needs for care. How do we navigate those transitions? Hopefully this contributes to an open conversation. And if you have feedback, if you have disagreements, if you have thoughts, please share them with me. I would like to continue this conversation for as long as I can. Thanks for being a part of it with me. Thank you for listening to this awareness offering. The Awareness Offerings Podcast is created, edited, and produced by me, Lara Tara Davy Joplin. My music is by my brother, Oxella, Oxela, O X E L A, who can be found on Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, and beyond. You can keep up with me on Instagram at Lara2 underscores Tara. Talk to you next time.